Hello and welcome to this Sustainable Wine podcast. This is a recording of a conference session that took place on the 2nd or 3rd of June 2021 as part of Sustainable Wine's Future of Wine Americas Conference 2021. We'd very much like to thank the sponsors of that conference, BSI, Bodega Argento, Jackson Family Wines, International Wineries for Climate Action and Avenea. Thank you to all of those groups for their important support and I hope you enjoy the session. We start with with you, Zach. Just give us an overview of uh, of uh, really what what you do, the the good goods, and let's see how that feeds into the, the conversation. Because it'd be great to understand a bit more about where you're coming from to help frame the conversation. So, Zach, welcome, and, and tell us about yourself and what you do. So, yeah, my name is Zach Wallace. I am the the CEO of Good Goods. At Good Goods, we create a we provide the credit management systems, the packaging formats and the incentive structures that enable reusable consumer products. And we're focused on the wine and spirits space. So I myself have been working in the sustainability world for the last three years, focused primarily around consumer behavior with reusables. I started really on the food side, launching a grab and go business uh, in 2018, where the idea of the grab and go business was really that we would provide grab-and-go meals that can be returned to kiosks or locations throughout the city or the packaging can be returned to kiosks um, or stores around the city for credit towards the consumer's next purchase. And we launched this in 2018, really with the mission to create a model for reuse. And we're totally convinced that this is what people wanted. They wanted a zero-waste lunch lunch option. And we made some major partnerships to bring it to life. We did deals with Aramark and Compass and Sexo. And we got to uh, 30 locations launched in New York City. Uh, and when we launched, what we what we quickly learned is that we had left the consumer behind. We were really focused on this idea of how do we get consumer, how do we get the packaging back, but not necessarily how do we think about reuse as a product feature and leverage it to create the best experience possible. So um, I, I, one of the crazy things that happened was that within the first three months the return rate for our packaging was really at around 33%. And our number one complaint that we were receiving from people was, uh, was the, having to return the packaging. So through the next uh, year, we, we tweaked things, we changed the consumer behavior, we tested AB strategies on, on how to communicate and how to test the incentive structures. And what we ended up with was an 85% return rate in locations like subway centers, office buildings, libraries, uh, we were able to change that from being the reuse from being a number one complaint that we were receiving to being actually the number one, oh, number three product feature benefit that people listed out for the product itself. So uh, we have a lot of experience really in where my, my experience lends itself to is understanding consumer behavior around reusables and, and how to leverage that as a product feature for, for uh, different brands and pro- uh, producers. Wow. Um, you, you make it sound so casual about that turnaround, Zach. That's amazing. You, you got to tell us more about this now. Um, so just go into a bit more detail. Where were you? Where did you get to? What did you change to make that happen? So the first thing we realized was really that, so to start, we we just kind of took the model that we'd really seen in the market beforehand, which was this idea of we're going to add a dollar to the cost. So you see an $8 item uh, in your cart. When you go to check out, it was $10 and you get those $2 back when you return it. Um, and what we realized is that created the first experience with our product ended up being a negative experience and that it was, it was, the item was in your cart or getting checked out with for more than you initially thought you were going to pay for it. So one of the things we did was just through testing 15 locations here doing this, 15 locations here doing that, 
where one we kept the return being added, we kept the deposit being added to it. The other one we just changed the price to be ten dollars and said, "Hey, if you return this, you'll get two dollars off your next purchase." And it was the same price point at the end of the day for everything. Just how it was messaged to the consumer uh, changed really everything. That made a massive change in our satisfaction rate, but it also made a massive change consumer loyalty numbers, return rates. That boosted us up to around uh, 50, 60% just there, um, which was a really cool thing to see that just messaging in that small way can make a huge change. The other thing we did was now that the incentive was added to the price, what we realized is that the, obviously the higher we add that price or the higher that deposit amount is, the higher the price point of our item is. So there's some elasticity in consumer behavior around when the price of the item becomes too expensive that they're no longer going to purchase it. But also the higher the incentive, the more returns you get back. So the question was really, where's that inflection point between the sales of your product and the return incentive? And what we learned is that really for any product type and based on who your consumers are and what your brand is and and things like that, that inflection point is going to change. But what we learned for us after testing all the way from 50 cents up to $3 was that that inflection point really happened around $2 for us. So after we changed that inflection point to around $2, um, that's when we really started to see some, some great return rates where we're seeing high 90s in some public locations, uh, but in the average in the network of around 85%. And then the last thing we did was instead of looking at it as saying, hey, this is this, cumbersome process that a consumer has to do, uh, we started saying, what if we looked at this and said, let's leverage these extra touch points as a way to provide content information to these consumers that help push our brand message, but also help give them information they were seeking. And so uh, what we did is we ended up giving people the option to opt in to learn about where their, their ingredients for the products came from when they were purchasing and things of that nature. And uh, what we saw was a really high engagement into it. People, once they started returning and feeling like they're a part of something that was doing good, they wanted to learn more. And so uh, giving them that option to dive a, a level deeper into the brand really helped push our, our loyalty metrics up. And, and by the end of it, not only were our return rates really high, our, uh, our loyalty, our engagement numbers were high enough that our partners like Aramark and Compass were uh, really shocked at the, the rate of repeat usage that we were getting for our machines. So what kind of products are we talking about here? Just give us a rundown of what, of what those are. Uh, we, we tried to standardize the formats. So we had a large format, which was like your salads, pretty much, it was pretty much exclusively salads. And we had a middle format, which was your bowls um, and kind of ranged anywhere from maybe a breakfast item to a, uh, a uh, like a more of like a, a bowl where you'd have like a grain and some other stuff in it. And then we had a, a drink format too. So we had bottles with fresh, fresh juice, juice and things like that. So we, we used these three formats to really package everything um, and keep it as standardized as possible, which is a really key part in trying to match costs and things of that nature. What kind of scale did you get to? So we, we have the 30 machines in New York City um, and we're still up and operating in about 20 of them through, through COVID. Um, but we have... Um, we have deals we're working on right now to hopefully bring that to a few hundred locations within New York, kind of after we get into the other side of, of COVID. Um, but right now we, we're really focused on trying to create uh, a platform level solution for, for the wine industry uh, in which we can 
in which we can provide kind of what we call the missing links to a sustainable drink. So something where where we can provide what we've seen is missing from from uh, different sectors, which is the credit management system, the packaging solutions, the reverse logistics, and support on the on the incentive structures, so that you can you can actually achieve your goals and and, uh, and get the packaging back. So yeah, what, tell us more about what that could look like for wine, because obviously if we're dealing with glass, you've got a very different weight ratio to deal with in terms of impact and and so on so how does all this apply to wine in more detail do you think um yeah so what we think is an interesting we think that wine has a unique opportunity to really set the tone for the rest of for other consumer industries and that it has a few distinct characteristics that make it uh really interesting one is that its packaging is already durable and reusable, being that it's glass. It's just not really being honored as durable and reusable in the current supply chain. Two, is that there is a level of history and standardization that already is applied within the wine industry uh, in which we can uh, come in and provide a direct solution without having to change too much underlying infrastructure of that industry. And then three, is that it, it has such a large footprint across the world across the U.S. specifically, which is our first market we're targeting, that, that addressing that or that entering that that initial footprint can really kind of create the infrastructure for for a larger a larger solution for reuse. And that uh, almost every large packaging store, like grocery stores and things of that nature, carry wine and spirits. So if you're able to start getting uh, wine to be accepted back at those locations, it can really be the front end for uh, a larger change and a larger adoption of reusable. Wow, fascinating, Joe. Um, do you have any thoughts on this question for Zach? And um, we, Bruce uh, Schneider is going to join us. We think we lost him temporarily. He was here earlier, so we're trying to find Bruce. But in the meantime, let's keep talking about this because it's fascinating as a solution. So, Joe, I wondered if you had any comments or questions for Zach. I, I think it's um, absolutely kind of points at the the incremental change. Um, kind of model doesn't it because if, if you're um you know come up with this great idea um and uh yeah you sort of don't quite accommodate the the, the consumer in it don't take them along on, on the the story with you it's really tough to get them to engage after the fact right totally and i think that it's it's a similar thing you're seeing in the wine industry with adoption of other formats such as the cans and and uh, back in the box. I know we were just talking about that actually. Sorry, one second. Shows my computers about to die. Um, but yeah, in the, the, the hardest part in trying to make a lot of these changes is not necessarily that producers don't want to, to do the right thing. I, almost every producer I talk to wants to do the right thing and, and make those changes. It's really that at the end of the day, education of the consumer is difficult and expensive to, to do, right? Yeah. And, so, and so this idea of, of packaging and footprint in, in the wine industry is, is really interesting and for a number of reasons. One, uh, it, packaging for this industry specifically, because it's glass and it's heavy, so it represents a significant part of the footprint. Uh, but it, and it's such an ingrained part of the history of the, of the product itself that it's really hard to get consumers to change. Mm -hmm. And that the current solutions of lightweighting and recycling are not really addressing the problem. Uh, we touched it, uh, touched on it a little bit in the last section, but um, recycling is obviously has its faults and is not really doing the job that it's is meant to be. And lightweighting while reducing the transportation costs, the reality is that the transportation costs are such a minimal part of the actual carbon footprint of that bottle. 
people all the time forget that it takes, I think you have to, you have to heat up glass around 1600 degrees Fahrenheit to melt it. So it's yeah. a extremely intensive process from a carbon uh, standpoint. And then lastly, the industry has, has uh, adopted reuse in the past. There's a real use case for it within the industry. The packaging costs allow for there to be use cases where you can reduce costs uh, for it, for the producers going forward. Um, and that you can, um, that you can really honor without having to change the consumer understanding of your product. You can really make that, that impact the reuse. So did the, the, the products that are in the, the reusable packaging, are they sort of developed by you? Are they uh, with, with uh, I think you mentioned uh, Sodexo? Um, so, yeah. They so buy the, the, the food and things and you package them. Is that the, is that the right model? Correct. We, uh, we work with them and uh, provide the, the packaging format and things of that nature to uh, packaging format the credit management systems, loyalty programs of that nature, that stuff. They produce the food. Um, in order to, to put it in the reusable container. And that's the same format we have now for, for the wine partners that we're working with. So we provide the, uh, the packaging, uh, standardized packaging uh, format for them to use. Then we, we actually go in and activate the retailers for them after they sell through to the retailers they normally would. Uh, and then we manage kind of the, the interaction, giving them the additional touch points and working with them to kind of build out their brand through this kind of this uh, inclusive digital experience for reuse. And what's the sort of reaction from from those from those organisations that you're working with? Are they kind of, oh, this is something we'll try. We don't know if it'll work, or is it kind of like, oh, great, you know, we get to to play around a little bit. Um, we the reaction for people for the most part have been um, people are interested. They're a little bit hesitant onto to how it work. I think that. It really depends on kind of which end of the spectrum you are. Bigger, bigger uh, players are interested in kind of the idea of positioning themselves as sustainable. The smaller players are um, interested in, in really making an impact and building their brands. And I think that that really talks to like the 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 major opportunity for for sustainable, reusable packaging, and that um, it is for the early for the early adopters. It really is going to be something that allows them to be a trendsetter, allows them to build a brand around it, and for everyone that kind of adopts it over a longer period of time, they'll be able to see the opportunities around loyalty and sales, and eventually the the reduction of costs for their packaging as well too. Yeah, I think that sort of touches on the um, uh, some of the, some of the sort of points from uh, the the first session where you know it's it's. There's a, a motivated minority of people who really want to drive innovation forward and, and drive forward with, you know, great ideas and, and you know, play with them and see if they work um, and, and commit to them as well. So, if, you know, if, if, it, if it falls the first hurdle, don't just throw everything out, but kind of, like, OK, well, let's refine it. Let's work on what, what does work, what doesn't work. Um, and I spent uh, some of my career working with Toyota. I worked at one of the Toyota manufacturing plants. And there's this phrase called, well, it's, it's Japanese, but it's Genshi Genbutsu. The idea is it's, it's go and see. Um, it, I think it translates as real location, real things. So you actually go and physically um, go and see as much of what's going on as you can in a supply chain to figure out what's going on. Because you might kind of think you know what's happening, but you haven't necessarily got all the data unless you physically go and see. So, you know, you kind of did the extra legwork afterwards with, you know, with working with consumers to see, Okay, well, what what is the what is the the, the what's what's the the 
tripping point? What's what's what? Why is this not getting the return factor that we that we're looking for? Um, and I think um, you know it's it's getting all of the little the little details that really are crucial in in affecting real change. Um, it's interesting that you used um, quite a lot of metrics. You know, you've, you've obviously done, um, analysed a lot of the data, um, and so your systems are all fully digital, and, and you can access that data quite quite simply and easily, presumably. Yeah, I think that's actually one of the most interesting parts about reuse that people tend to forget about, especially when you start talking about fast-moving consumer goods in which majority of wine will fall into. We, we talked earlier about how in, in, in uh, the UK, the average price is about six pounds. And uh, when you're talking about products that are that are in retail and they're, they fall into the, that category of fast-moving consumer goods, um, a lot of times the relationship between the consumer and the brand is completely managed by the retailer. Um, and there's no, there's a very little or, or no insight from the brand into what's going on with the with customer. What's interesting about reuse is that every time the customer either returns or redeems their credits, they need some form of unique identifier in order to store their credits um, or be part of the credit management system. And in which case, then we can actually build a direct relationship with the customers, similar to what you do with the direct consumer platform um, and understand who those consumers are, get real live data. And I think that a lot of our partners have been really shocked by um, the level of insight that we can provide to not just about what their customers are purchasing, but why they are purchasing them and, and why they either love their brand or what they would wish to see differently from their brand. Yeah. And um, do you think there's, there's a... a, a perhaps an attraction of, of, of perhaps sharing that data with, with other organizations who are looking to sort of utilize a, a reuse model. Yeah, I mean, I think that anytime you start talking about uh, data and sharing of uh, personal information, then mm. it's, it's more but, so yeah, about- the Overall it's metric, more, I guess. It's more so about, about packaging into metrics that can be useful for the overall, um, for the overall movement that we're trying to do, which is trying to get people more in towards reuse, more in towards the circular supply chain, as opposed to, um, like packaging up and potentially selling that data or things of that nature. But um, yeah, so we're, we're really, we're really uh, coveted kind of about how we, we relay that information, what information is available and things of that nature. But yeah, our goal is to, our goal is to get real data points over the period of time saying, okay, well, we know that customers in the UK need a pound in order for them to, to return it at an 85% level or a 65% level and to work with producers to come up with like, what are your goals? Uh, mm -hmm from from a reusable packaging standpoint what do you want to what do you want to relate to your customers what does that translate to to uh the total amount of packaging that we're going to get returned and, and things of that nature and so um there are a lot of lever levels levers that you can pull within reuse which is why it's so much different than than uh than single use uh, i try to tell people all the time that we are trying, part of the problem with reuse right now is we're trying to compete head on with, with single use. Right. Uh, single use does a few things really great. It's easy and it's cheap. And if you try to compete with it in those two categories right off the bat, you're probably gonna lose. Okay. But if you are able to look at the, the opportunities that come from reuse, then you can create a real business case for why you should start using reusables. And that's leveraging these additional touch points and, and things of that nature to, uh, to, to create a better experience for consumers. So there's, there's a, uh, and this is my last sort of question really, but um, there's a sort of um, uh, agenda, I suppose, with, 
um, the types of brands that you would you would partner with to, to do this that perhaps not in, in the cheaper in the cheaper range because the, 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 the metric isn't there the you know the, the deposit and the and the um, value is, 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 is at a very different level. It really depends on on the producer and, and what they how much they want to commit to it. So at some points it makes sense for their brand, some points it doesn't. But that kind of gets back to that same topic where um, where we don't necessarily want to compete head on with single use. Uh, we want to in the from a cost standpoint of the of the bottles themselves. I do think that we're going to hit a point where reuse is cheaper than buying a single use. Um, I don't think we're going to hit a point where it's so substantially cheaper that we can actually fully incentivize the customer by the difference between those. So if you're talking about how people always forget about how do I get that packaging back and you need to incentivize the customer to get it back. You could have the most efficient cleaning system in the entire world, but if you do not get your packaging back, it doesn't matter for anything. Yeah. And so in order to incentivize the customer, you have three ways. You can either raise the price, reduce the margin, or you can make the difference between the packaging costs and the um, and the the reuse costs be the difference that it requires you to incentivize the consumer. And so um, we think about it is in how are we building out a new model that works for all parties instead of thinking about how do we try to fit within the the current model of uh, of single use. And so. Um, yeah, that's the inclusion of things like deposits and things of that nature into the into the system. Zach, thank you. That's absolutely fascinating. I'm sure the audience has some questions for you. I'm sure, like me, they're still trying to take it all in. So there's plenty of time for Q&A, but I'm delighted that Bruce has been able to join us, Bruce Schneider from Gotham Project. Bruce, thanks so much for, for coming. Love to hear uh, a bit about what you've been doing at Gotham Project and, and how that fits into sustainable wine packaging, and then we'll We'll have a conversation from there. So, Bruce, welcome and, and love to hear about your work. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, great to be with you. Um, so, Gotham Project was uh, founded in 2010. So, we're uh, the company's 11 years old at this point. Uh, from the outset, all we've done is reusable packaging. Um, we started with kegs, uh, reusable stainless steel kegs uh, for restaurants and wine bars. Uh, we helped pioneer that category in the U.S. market. Um, it's something that had been tried before, but never really with any great success. And I think uh, one of the things we did from the outset was to uh, put very high quality wines in the, uh, in the format and wines that offered uh, great value. Um, and along the way, we had to build a logistics platform to move bulk wine around the world in an efficient way. Um, and the, the commonality, though, on all of this was local packaging. So uh, filling kegs, um, mainly our main uh, filling center, our only one at this point is in New Jersey. Uh, but we've been doing this for 11 years and, and have you know, refine the logistics platform over that time, uh, along with a company called Free Flow Wines that just does keg logistics uh, for wine in, in the U.S. market. So that was our first experience. Uh, you know, today, 90% plus of our business uh, is in reusable stainless steel uh, kegs. There are some one-way options in kegs. Uh, sometimes, you know, you hear them referred to as 
recyclable, but they're not really recyclable in that these are, if you think of a 20 liter PET, there aren't systems set up to, to do recycling on those uh, packaging formats. So that's, that's why we really believe that the, uh, the reusable stainless steel is the way to go. Um, and about a year ago, um, just before COVID, we started to look at uh, establishing, launching a reusable glass bottle with the premise that uh, if we could do this for kegs, there was no reason why we couldn't do the same thing for glass bottles. After all, glass bottle is really designed to be used many times. If you think about it, no different than our dishes or our silverware. Um, that that bottle is really durable and it has the potential to be used many times. It would just require a rethinking of, of the way we do things. So um, we, we started working on that and uh, paused for a little while during COVID and then finally have launched uh, our first test in three markets in February. Uh, we are uh, doing this in New York, Massachusetts and Colorado. Um, we have a, um, a uniform bottle, a um, bottle that we had a uh, mold designed. It's embossed and debossed. It says return and reuse on it. Um, it now comes in two, two colors. There's antique green and a flint bottle. Uh, we're using the antique green for, for red wines, uh, the flint for rosé and white. Um, and, you know, so far the, the early uh, response has been really positive, but it's something that we know is going to take a, a lot of education and it's something that we think has tremendous uh, potential. And what do you think the potential is for scale? I mean, where, where do you want to get to? How, how far in terms of market penetration for wine do you think you can get to? Well, look, I mean, we, we've got a long, long way to go and a big opportunity, right? 80% plus of all the wine sold today is in a glass bottle. So that's the approachable market. You know, that's, that's you know, 4 billion plus uh, wine bottles a year in the U.S. market. So it's, it's a huge market uh, with kegs over the past decade, along with other uh, producers, we've we've helped with a uh, facility in New Jersey where we fill kegs along with free flow for other producers. Um, and today, that kegs uh, wine on tap represent you know almost one percent of the wine uh, by the glass market. So it's still a tiny fraction. I th I think there's the ability to scale that a whole lot faster when it when you talk about uh, reusable glass. Um, but it's, it's going to take a lot of education and it's going to take a lot of uh, commitment from all, uh, you know, parts of the value chain, particularly retailers. Um, obviously, with restaurants, it's a little uh, you have a, you have the advantage that the bottle stays in, in the restaurant. So collection of the bottles is a lot easier um, on the on premise side. And is the, the expansion plans around urban areas at the moment? I guess that would make the most sense is that how it's yeah going? i mean that's uh that's that's where we're starting uh but i but i think it's got you know wider potential as well great joe um what are your thoughts on 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 this you must have come across kegs as a, a format option in in the general work that you do at bsi what are your views on, on what you've heard any questions you have from for bruce yeah i've 
I mean, Bruce, you say that um, you were very careful about, you know, the, the, the types of wines and the, the quality of the wine that you were, you were keen to put into those cakes. And I'd be interested to hear sort of how it was working with those those wine producers and, and what the, you know, was there a kind of a persuasion arc or, or, or were they kind of in on, in on the ground floor? Yeah, I would say once, you know, once we explained what we were doing, um, our initial uh, experience with, with local wines, I've been producing wines in New York State for 25 plus years. Uh, my partner, my business partner, Charles Beeler, uh, his family used to own Chateau Rutas in Provence, and he's been producing rosé from Provence for 20 plus years, uh, as well as producing wines on the West Coast in both California and Washington State. Um, so when we started, we, we started in New York and we thought it made sense to start with local wines. We started with a Finger Lakes Riesling, uh, a little later added a Cabernet Franc, uh, Red Cab Franc, and then a Rosé of Cabernet Franc from New York State. Um, but from the beginning, we sort of took the approach that the, the only limit to the, the quality of the wines coming out of the keg, or I think the same holds true for reusable glass, is the quality you put in. And, and you just, I think producers need to be courageous about it um, and not look at it as a, um, you know, it's not a gimmick. It's not, it's not for inexpensive wines. Um, you know, there's, there's really the ability to have a wide spectrum of, of wine uh, quality levels and styles in, in the formats. I think that's really important because I, I mentioned earlier uh, in the first session that you know I, I always look at the bag in box because that's our kind of you know it, it, the nearest you get to kegs probably in the UK um, for um, uh, for wine for you know just for you know the day to day wine uh, or the weekend wine and um, the, just the, the quality isn't there you see you know it's kind of a, an afterthought that we'll, we'll put packet wine into that pack format because you know some people want to drink more of a weekend I think. You know the positioning of formats like that's got to be really careful, and 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 I think starting with the quality is 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 absolutely um is is a really interesting uh, avenue. Um, I'd like to see more <laughs> more quality wine in new pack formats. Um, are you sort of branching out into other countries, or are you sort of sticking out sticking to the US at the moment? Um, so, so we only sell in, in the U.S. Uh, from a sourcing perspective, we're sourcing from all major wine regions of the world. Mm. Oh, so you're importing as well? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, from, uh, you know, the first six to nine months was exclusively New York wines, but we started importing uh, within the first year. So we have several offerings from France, from Italy, Spain. Portugal, South uh, South America, uh, Argentina, and Chile, New Zealand. So, Bruce, uh, yeah, wide wide spectrum. Bruce, I have a question for both you and Zach. I and mean, often with these sustainable innovations we hear about, they're amazing, and you can see how they can scale. Of course, they start small, but they're really inspiring when we look at the challenges we covered in the first session. But, but I sometimes wonder if they off, operate in a bit of a parallel universe from where the big brands are in you know, everyday life, and that's always the challenge. For both of you, and maybe Zach, you could start. What's the level of interest from like bigger, serious players in the industry? Do they just sort of see you as something to uh, find out about, or are you having any kind of serious interest or conversations? And, and what does that look like? Appreciate, you know, you can't always say everything, but I'm just trying to join up the dots a bit here, uh, Zach. 
Yeah, I think that's probably the most exciting part of this whole thing to me. And obviously, I won't I won't say necessarily who it is, but or who they are. But um, the take from the, some of the largest players out there is that this is going to happen. They're going to test this. They're going to do it. Um, that they're they're interested in it. And um, and I think that f- from we're at like a real interesting point, um, especially from a reuse standpoint. Uh, for the industry as a whole. So I'm, I'm excited about the future. I'm excited about the interest from a lot of the larger brands. Um, and I'm excited about the smaller ones. I think that it's going to kind of be a collaboration between the two that really makes this whole thing work. So um, yeah, I, we have seen significant interest from from large players as well, too. I think it's only a matter of time until you start to see um, some big players doing very similar things. So might they buy you out? Uh, that, that often happens. <laughs> uh, we'll see. I, I, uh, they're... They're uh, they're interested in the space. There's there's still a lot a lot to figure out and a lot to a lot to to do for for reuse within wine. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, Bruce, same same question for you. Um, I, you know, I think we can look at the the keg example as instructive. You know, in the first first couple of years, we got tons of uh, inquiries from you know small, super high quality producers, uh, larger producers. It, it really ran the spectrum. Um, and I think you know at this point, 10 years in, you see you've got representation from every size. Some of the largest producers are producing in keg format now. So I think you know I don't think there's a, a limiting factor there. I think you know you can have producers of all uh, sizes and you know scale. Um, in, in the format and in, in the category. I think the same applies for reusable glass. Thank you. So audience, so you've all been very quiet in this session. No, it was quite busy in the last one, but uh, Joe and I are asking all the questions here. We have combined these sessions because we felt that was most appropriate uh, given uh, the crossover. Do, do any of you have some questions or comments you'd like to make after what you've heard? We've looked at the drivers in the business case. We've looked at the alternative formats that are out there we've looked at the impact of packaging and, and the the challenge of the the change needed and now we're focusing obviously in this session on on solutions that are being tested out in the market and, and they're looking to be scaled which is fascinating do any of you have any questions for our our esteemed panel i assume you're all paying attention and not uh doing the doing the cooking or the house chores while this is on anybody well i mean, i i would have a final question for, for you all then maybe i'll start with you bruce and then zach and then joe which is you know it's it's the the cliched crystal ball question i mean you've all sort of hinted at it but you know we have increased interest and serious interest in tackling climate change and other issues now uh, in in most countries so if you look forward say to 2030 what sort of market changes would you see in the way wine is served at the moment um bruce let me start with you with your crystal ball how far can these innovations take us by then I think they have to take us really far. I, I think if you look at other industries, you look at what the Patagonias of the world have done with textiles and clothing, you look at seventh generation with uh, household cleaning products, uh, in every major category, you've, you've got pioneers and leaders. And I, and I think we're on the early edge of it, but, but I think the consumer today is demanding this. And I, and I think as an industry, the wine industry, uh, we have to do better. Um, we, we have to take a full look at the life cycle uh, of the packaging we're using. Um, and I think, 
you know, kegs and reusable glass can both play a, a huge role in this. I think there is a role for, um, you know, bag and box cans. I mean, there are multiple formats that I think can improve the carbon footprint in the industry, but we're particularly interested in uh, kegs and reusable glass and, and the reusable aspect as we think that's, that's the best way to go. Thank you, Bruce. Zach, what would your crystal ball ruminations be? Yeah, to echo what, what Bruce said, I think that there's going to be a number of formats. I think that producers are going to have to look at their products and see where they fit within the different types of packaging formats in order to make adjustments to to uh, transition to more sustainable behaviors because customers are driving it. I think you're going to see a leading in of innovation and people who are testing it are willing to take those changes and those leaps. And then I think you're going to see a back-end uh, tailwind from regulation and things of that nature uh, coming through the pipeline as well, too. So um, I think that in this industry specifically, consumers are um, very aware of what's going on. And for that reason, you're going to see a lot of major brands and a lot of uh, producers really pay attention to it early and get on that front, front wave of innovation. Um, so I'm excited. I think that there's a, an opportunity in this space to, to uh, see adoption um, pretty quickly. Great. Thank you. Joe, let me give the final word to you before we close. Um, I, I also think, you know, glass, glass isn't going anywhere. Well, there'll always be a spot for glass, not just in, in, in you know, perhaps the vintage um, sort of industry. Um, I, I think, you know, we'll see a proliferation of pack formats. There's room for everybody. Um, but I, I hope that the selection of those pack formats are driven by evidence, by, driven by life cycle analysis, driven by an understanding of the infrastructure in different regions. You know, we... Um, I'm, I mean, I live in the UK. We've got a very faulty um, recycling system, but culturally, we're quite used to, you know, separating our waste and, and having a recycling box, you know, or, or bins, several, you know, receptacles for um, for different types of, of, of materials. Um, uh, but there are parts of the world that absolutely don't have that, and uh, light years from having that, but are still going to access, you know, not just wine but other foodstuffs as well. So we need to be very cognizant of of the, of the nature of the infrastructure in different regions and, and the types of um, pack format that, that would suit that 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 uh, geography. Um, I, I hope to see more wine in lighter bottles, a normalisation of, of, of different pack formats um, in, in supermarkets, uh, in, in online retail as well, in, in multi-channel retail. I think there's room for, for lots of creativity and playfulness around, you know, how to get these 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 lovely wines to, to consumers and and maybe even a, a, a square glass bottle for wine who knows joe thank you it's been lovely to to finish on an optimistic note and to look at some of the innovations and take a hopeful look forward too often conversations about packaging get bogged down in the sort of fundamental incentives problem and the legacy systems problem and the recycling systems problem we're, we're all very much aware those exist but it's been great to to have that kind of overview of the options and to hear about the drivers uh, and then to hear about some of the, the solutions which we hope can scale. So thank you all very much for your time. Audience, uh, thank you too. We will release this as a, an audio podcast. So search for Sustainable Wine on your podcast app and you'll get this into your phone. Um, and it'll also be on the Sustainable Wine website. I'd really like to thank Joe and her colleagues at BSI for supporting us and supporting this workshop. Please have a look at what BSI do. They, they do some fascinating and important work and they can support you on your journey. And we will be talking more about packaging tomorrow. Um, 
it's been nice to have this deep dive because we have lots of other things to talk about at the conference starting uh, tomorrow on Central Time. So you've all had the agenda for that. And we really look forward to seeing you there. But uh, Bruce, Zach and Joe, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.